continuously is, you know, finding that deeper connection where, uh, where you really notice and observe, really maximizing the time that you spend outside and, and uh, experiencing the, the natural and cultural landscape, you know, feeling joy in nature. I think that's like the overarching goal cooking over an open fire, foraging, kayaking, hiking, ice skating, all that good stuff. But, it, but it's also a philosophy, it's, it's a way of life. And I'm Swedish, so because of the culture that I grew up in, I knew that I could lean on that uh, in hard times. Welcome to The Open Air. This is Jesse Raisler, and you're listening to Open Air Humans, stories about how we can live a happier, healthier, more creative life outdoors. My guest today is Swedish-American writer Linda McGurk. Linda is the author of The Open Air Life, Discover the Art of Free Live Sleeve, and also There's No Such Thing as Bad Weather, a Scandinavian mom's secrets for raising healthy, resilient, and confident kids. Today, Linda and I dig into the concept of free loose sleeve, along with some really fascinating histories and anecdotes from the Scandinavian cultures that coined the term. This episode is brought to you by The Open Air Outpost, a new nature escape with luxury tiny cabin and glamping options just two hours northeast of the Twin Cities. It's a place where we made it easy to put into practice all the wisdom we've learned from the guests on this very show. You can even book unique experiences with some of them as part of your stay. Learn more at openairoutpost.com. Without further ado, Linda McGurk. Well, Linda, I've been so looking forward to this uh, conversation ever since I saw an announcement for your new book, The Open Air Life, which was published right at the end of 2022, um, because I I can't imagine a book more closely connected (laughs) to the core theme of this show. Clearly, open air humans live open air lives. So, you know, welcome to the podcast that I'm I'm pretty certain was created for the the very same reasons that you wrote your book. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I I thought exactly the same thing when I heard of your podcast. I thought, (laughs) wow, that's got to be a perfect match for me to go on. (laughs) 100%. Well, I think it's it's a good idea to start with defining the term that defines this way of living in open air life, which... You know, I think Mer- Americans more and more are loving um, borrowing and learning these concepts from Nordic culture. Um, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if free loose sleeve, you know, becomes known as as well as Huga. If I'm saying you have to correct me if I'm <laughs> saying these right or wrong. Um, but we all love that idea yeah. of cozy, especially in the upper Midwest where I live. You know, that, know, that idea yeah. of being cozy and the, the Huga concept, I think, really caught on. And I think as people look to spending, you know, more time in nature and outdoors, I mean, free lift sleeve is, yeah. is a great one. And I'm, hope, I'm hoping we can just kind of start there for those that are unfamiliar with it, how you define that term. Yeah, it's it's a less known um, word than, than Hygge. And, and I'm not even sure I'm saying it's actually Hygge is a Danish word. So and I'm Swedish. So uh, Got it. My, my pronunciation could be a little flawed, too. But um, just like Hygge, free lift sleeve, it lacks an equivalent in the English language. And uh, I, it, 
I like to put it in really like simple terms and just explain it as uh, sort of the outdoorsy cousin of Huguet. Mm. So it's like all the things that we do outside before we cozy up inside, you know, in front of the fireplace with the hot cocoa and, and all that. <laughs> so it's about like spending, like really maximizing the time that you spend outside and, and, uh, experiencing that the natural and cultural landscape um both you know for personal wellness but um you know also just to experience nature without any pressure to achieve or compete and to sort of find like a deeper connection with nature and um it's based mostly around like slow activities outside and in, in nearby nature and typically it's a non-motorized activities it's uh, non-competitive um, just simple ac- things that don't require a lot of money so the most common like free to sleep activity if you will is just like walking around the neighborhood it's about you know feeling joy in nature I think that's like the overarching goal and it's something that we pass on from one generation to the next so it's very common to spend time outside as a family over the generations, but also with with uh, friends, it's, it's a common way of, of socializing together. So yeah, that's kind of it in in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's interesting. Like you mentioned the word slow, and when I was reading your book and thinking about the distinguishing things between, let's say, you know, birding or foraging versus water skiing, I thought of like almost like the slow food movement too, of like slowing down and 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 being more methodical and like the difference of fast food and slow food versus like motorized outdoor sport versus the type of um, activity yes. that you talk about. So that's, that was kind exactly. of Exactly. It's a way of becoming more conscious of uh, the environment around you. Um, and, you know, I've water skied too, and, and I'm not saying, saying there's anything wrong with that, but it's, it's, you know, you need to understand the difference that that those are different ways of experiencing nature. One is sleep is, you know, finding that deeper connection where uh, where you really notice and observe uh, and you become one with nature and then motorized activities where it's more about your personal thrill, um, right. about getting that sort of adrenaline, uh, that jolt of uh, adrenaline. Then it's more about your personal pleasure and a lot of those activities, you know, are harmful to nature. I mean, you know, burning fossil fuels and so forth. So, um, so yeah, two different things, really. And I will say, I do get quite a thrill and sometimes a hit of a gentleman when I find mushrooms when I'm foraging <laughs> certain mushrooms. So there's yeah, wow, that's great. There's you a little the overlap. <laughs> there's a little overlap. Not to say they're mutually yeah. exclusive, but I, I think we can understand yeah. the the distinction and the difference. And um, yeah. I'm I'm curious. How, like, why did you feel called to write about this concept personally? What was going on for you that you're like, this is a book and I really, really want to write about it? Yeah. Um, I feel like it's really enriched my life personally, but I've also, you know, it's given me a lot. I feel like nature has always been uh, a constant that I've been able to rely on through throughout life, throughout the ups and the downs uh it's just been this constant force um and because of the culture that i grew up in i knew that i could lean on that uh in hard times 
Yeah. Um, so I've noticed that it's benefited me, it's benefited my family, and it's, def I mean, it's definitely benefited us as a society as a whole. And so I really felt like I wanted to share this concept with um, countries outside of the, the Nordics, too, because I feel like other countries, too, can benefit, just like just like forest bathing kind of um, mm. has been trending the, the past few years, which is a Japanese uh, concept. Um, and Hige, uh, as we were talking about earlier, um, just became this huge craze. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, you know, they're feel asleep. I'm, I'm hoping that that too will, will take off and that people will, will start um, thinking of uh, spending time in nature in that in that way. Uh, I know that there's a there's been a, a, a growing growing momentum for the movement to get kids back outside. Yes. Uh, ever since Richard Liu uh, published his book uh, Last Child in the Woods, um, and I feel like Feed of Sleep that kind of it it's sort of um, uh, you know that that involves the entire family. Uh, or if you don't have kids, uh, Felix Neve is a, is a great way for people to sort of embrace nature in a way that is um, uh, environmentally uh, conscious, so to speak. Yep, yep. And I do feel like you know this is a concept to your point of bringing it you know outside of Sweden. It, it seems like a lot of cultures have this tradition, but maybe haven't named it and also don't necessarily have the depth of the tradition that's found in Sweden and Scandinavia. And right. I think one thing that really hit it home for me was this concept of, again, I'm going to need your help, Allemansträtten. Is that, yes. am I saying that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's good. Which yeah. I want to talk about, which is essentially that there's access to all land, but in the, in the tradition in Scandinavia, it goes back even further, right? I was hoping you could set up like, where do you see the origins of this mindset coming from? Um, yeah, it goes back uh, since uh, yeah, the old agrarian, uh, the old agrarian society long before uh, Christianity um, uh, came to uh, to the Nordic countries. So um, goes back to the Vikings and even in before that. So uh, because back then uh, uh, people here didn't. You know, they didn't know the scientific explanations for different natural phenomena. So naturally, they they uh, they they thought that um, that you know the, the they turned to the pagan gods uh, because they thought they were behind, like uh, Thor, for example, that he was you know caused um, the, the thunder and lightning, and different gods were you know connected with uh, with uh, fertility, for example, and um, uh, and there were a lot of rituals and feasts that were tied to the changing of the seasons, especially, you know, the equinoxes and the solstices. And um, so I, I think it goes back a long time, like this connection with nature. Uh, that doesn't mean that back then that people sort of, uh, uh, they had a different different type of connection than we do today because back then nature was also often, you know, a source of fear and awe. Uh, because they couldn't explain a lot of the natural phenomena. And then uh, because of this, uh, th there was a lot of nature worship, mm -hmm. and especially among the indigenous Sami population here, um, which uh, uh, live in, in the northern parts of uh, Norway, Finland, uh, Sweden, and also um, uh, Russia. 
And, uh, you know, they believe that there is very little separation between humans and, and nature and that plants and animals and, and uh, other sort of natural phenomena had a soul and a personality. Um, and then when, when uh, Christianity finally got, you know, a hold in the Nordic countries, and this took longer because of this established sort of nature worship that, that was there, um, then the nature worship was sort of demonized and banned, uh, and mm. uh, a lot of the rituals were replaced with Christian equivalents, like the summer solstice, you know, uh, was replaced with St. John's Day and then Christmas instead of winter, so the winter solstice. And, right. um, but it was never able to push it out completely. So a lot of this is still very present in our culture. Um, and, uh, and during the Enlightenment, then this nature spirituality sort of made a comeback and, and some mm. theologians uh, even embraced it. So that sort of created a foundation for the close relationship that Nordic people have with nature today. And then uh, during the Romantic era uh, in the 1800s, then that's when Friluslid came um, okay. when, when, when that word was uh, coined and it was a reaction then against an industrialization mm. urbanization um people were people felt like you know the cities were getting too busy and there was you know too much traffic and people and, and noise and pollution and they just wanted wanted out out in the countryside and so it started with the elites uh the the artists and and uh another you know the cultural elite and then it sort of spread to the masses later on and uh and yeah so so this tradition of Felix Liebe it has a a long history but but the 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 phrase itself uh came about in, in the mid 1800s and uh yeah and that took us to where where we are today That's... when it's ingrained in, in society that's so interesting that it was like a reaction. The, the term, the coining of the term, was a reaction to the industrial revolution and to, right. to see what happened then. And I don't know. I feel like there's a little bit of something similar happening now that you know with COVID. And I'm I'm one example. Like people are realizing um, they can kind of get their work done from a lot of different places. And so like urban professionals are you know right, leaving the right. city again. And I wonder if there's some similarities in the reason reasons behind that um i th i definitely think so and i think the rise of um the, the digitalization yeah. has also contributed which you know they didn't have in the 1800s but that's something that you know radically turned our society on its head i mean um the development with digitalization yes it, it's made our lives a lot easier but it's also come with some side effects, some side effects that, that are not so pleasant. And that is that we are constantly plugged into our devices. A lot of us are. Um, and, uh, you know, we have this constant pinging of, uh, pinging of our smartphones, all these notifications. And, you know, in, so in one way, even though we can work from home, it's also a lot harder to just turn off your work uh, right. because you're always um, plugged in to some extent. And I think a lot of people are now feeling um, the need to get outside and just immerse themselves in nature to get a separation from from that. Um, 
th those sort of negative effects of uh, digitalization um, and, and the sedentary uh, lifestyle that sort of come in, in that in its wake too. Right. So so I'm seeing I'm seeing you know uh, I'm starting to see these places advertised um, for uh, retreats and like cabins and and in the woods where, where there's no internet connection and they're being marketed to mm -hmm. people as, you know, you know, come stay this getaway, like completely unplugged. And, and I think a lot of people crave that. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think, I think we'll see more of that in the future. Yeah. It's the, the digital detox. We've so immersed ourselves into the technology that it we use the word detox to, yeah. to cleanse ourselves yeah. of it right because it, <laughs> you are so it's so easy to be so immersed in it and it's all consuming mm -hmm. well um yeah. it's so interesting to yeah to note when this term was coined there's clearly a longer tradition in informing it that goes way back um but another way that it seems embedded in the culture is this concept of almond and was that around the same time that Freeloose leave was coined as a term, or, or how did that come about? Um, you know, some parts of it actually goes back even farther. It goes back to the Middle Ages. And can um, you say more about what that is, too? I don't think I've yes. fully defined it. Uh, the Maseretten, it literally means um, all men's right uh, to roam. What it means is that, uh, you know, people in the, the Nordic countries, but especially Sweden, Norway, and Finland, uh, have the right to... Uh, Rome, uh, you know, land in the countryside, um, any nature areas, regardless of whether it's um, privately owned or publicly publicly owned. So you can, um, the, the law differs a little bit from country to country, but in Sweden, you are allowed to, you know, to hike or bike. Um, you can uh, pitch a tent without landowners uh, asking landowner for permission for a, a night or two. Wow. And uh, uh, and it doesn't mean that you can pitch a tent in somebody's backyard. That's a, kind of a, a common misconception. But you have to be. Sure. It has to be a, a property that's big enough that's that you're sort of out of sight. Um, sure. And uh, you can even have like a small campfire. You can forage on private land. Like it grants you extensive rights to use the land. Um, but it also comes with a responsibility to not destroy anything and, and uh, uh, not disturb wildlife and so forth. So it's sort of a give and take. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's something that all people hear. There's something that you learn about from, you know, from preschool pretty much, wow. um, you know, what, what it entails and uh, and what the responsibilities are. And I think it really... So it drives home the point that nature is something that we all sort of own together and we all hmm. we're all responsible for it. We need to be good stewards of it because it's a it's a shared responsibility. And um, you know, I didn't realize how unique this was until I started traveling, um, you know, when I was in my uh, in my teens and, and I, I thought like I hadn't taken that for granted, and then I realized that this is not this is not how it is in most places. So it's it's pretty unique, and I really think it helps uh, foster that sort of um, eco conscious uh, uh, spirit, and and uh, and I think it's one of the reasons why um, 
why why we're so, in, sort of in the forefront when it comes to uh, environmental policy and so forth because we grow up uh, learning from from the start you know how to how to act in nature and and to be one with with nature. Wow, and one thing I thought was so interesting too, like how embedded this is in the the conscience or the psyche of the Swedish people is that there's actually no word for trespassing in Swedish. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Right, right. So, so it was quite a, it was a, quite the cultural shock when I <laughs> when I moved to the U.S. in my twenties and I saw these no no trespassing signs and the barbed wire, right, um, everywhere. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's such true. a such a different mindset. And yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's there. It feels like there's a lot of different ways that this mindset shows up. I think Alamon Stratton is one example of that i also love like kind of getting back to you know we're talking about the spiritual rituals and i don't know if this is if you would call this adjacent or connected but the traditions of like it feels like both in like celtic mythology and and norse mythology like there's this cloak of like magical quality that the forest is imbued with you know you have Uh fairies in the celtic tradition and in scandinavia you have the troll forest and yes it sort of adds this layer of mystery and intrigue and for me it makes me want to you know explore and get into these places have you noticed like do you think that's part of this tradition or has informed it in any way too yeah i think so um yeah i I forgot to mention that earlier but yeah that part of this sort of nature worship it involved a lot of different supernatural creatures like trolls and the tomten uh and uh, elves uh, and so forth and uh and and to this day um i think you know these i think they play uh this part of the culture plays an important role in introducing children especially to the natural world because you make mm. it magical so one um one of the ways that that uh, swedish children learn about uh, the, the ecosystems and uh, uh, how to how to be responsible in nature is through this forest troll uh, Mulle, mm. and uh, so so he kind of he teaches the children sort of environmental ethics, but in an age appropriate way, in a way that adds mystery and magic to the stories, and and um, he makes it fun, you know. So it's not like textbook, like, oh, we are, we're in a climate crisis, like we got to stop burning fossil fuels. No, it's it's through, you know, you start at a very uh, sort of, you start where the children are, you meet yeah. them where they are by using, by falling, you know, we fall back on on these old, old stories and, and it's very much... Um, present to this day like a lot of forests uh, i think every every county has a forest or every town that is called the troll forest that's just like the default name for any forest because um you know that because uh, that's what parents do you you when you walk your kids through the forest you you talk about well you know the possibility of, of um, magical creatures hiding it's, it's fun to to sort of fantasize about you know a big rock maybe being a hiding place for right. for a troll family and, and things like that. I love I love that, and I think it's no wonder too that at a if you're being exposed to this at a young age in a fun way where it's it's such so ingrained 
in the culture in that way. It's no wonder that, you know, a lot of the modern environmental activism is coming from Sweden, Sweden with Greta right, Thunberg. Right. And it's like, if, yeah, uh-huh. it started from such an early age, it's just part of, yes. yeah, the mindset. Um, yeah, for I, sure. I, I'd love to talk about, like, you know, not only did this, does this show up in these really, um, you know, historical traditions, but today, you know, some of the, the stats I found quite, quite shocking um, in terms of like 72 versus 19% um, of 72% of people, people in Sweden consider themselves hikers where it's only 19% Brazil. in America. And in, in, in Sweden, you have how many terms is it for different types of walking? <laughs> You know, I don't even think that my book completely covers all of them. I came to think of more after I published the book. I was like, oh, no, I forgot some. Um, So I don't know. It's probably like 25 at least. (laughs) Tell me. Yeah. Give Um, us a few examples because I found that so fascinating. It's like, no, we're not just going for a walk. There's a million different ways we can go for a walk. There are specific walks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So we have, uh, I'd say, uh, one of the most common ones is the Skogspromenade, which is a forest walk. So, you know, that's great for just like quiet contemplation or, um, you know, if you really want to take in nature with all your senses. Um, There's the Kvällspromenade, which is the evening walk. And Mm, that's, you know, a common way for people who work full time to to get their nature time in. Um, there's the Barnvangspromenade, which is a stroller walk. So that's usually for people who are on uh, parental leave. Yeah. Um, you know, they bring their babies along. So, uh, yeah, some people call them uh, stroller mobs. Uh, but uh, then, um, yeah, if you have a stroller, you know, obviously you'll, you'll want to stick with the more stroller-friendly terrain. Um, and there's the... Um, uh, well, moonlight walk, Monkel's promenade, uh, walking, uh, you know, without a, a light, you know, ah, a flashlight. I love that. Uh, uh, yeah, in the moonlight. Uh, yeah, it's one of my favorites too, especially in the winter time when there's snow yes. reflecting the moonlight. It's pretty magical. Um, so yeah, there are all sorts of words for different different types of walks, and uh, and and I think you know, I think. That uh, that vocabulary—it's a reflection of our culture. Um, we right. do walk a lot for fun, and therefore, you know, we have these many words to describe um, how we walk. <laughs> right. Whereas in the U.S., and the, there's an interesting semantical difference there um, because in the U.S., it's more—I I felt like we were more often talking about hiking when we talked about being, you know, walking in nature, but hiking also implies that, you know, it just seems more involved. It's not just like going for a walk around the neighborhood. You wouldn't call that a hike. Then uh, it's more, then you got to, you know, pack a a backpack and maybe bring some food. And it involves like, you know, driving somewhere and going on like this bigger mission and, um, uh, which is fine. You know, we, we do that too. But the thing about Phoenix Neve is I think it, you take it down a notch or to where you focus more on just trying to find nature in your nearby areas, um, to make it more of a daily habit. Um, and granted that we are pretty spoiled here with nature areas and because of Alamans that then we also have the right to access them and 
that, you know, I know that is an issue and, um, and in a lot of places. Um, but there's always the, the neighborhood walk. Um, and, uh, I think, I think a lot of times people don't think of that as connecting with nature, um, because it's not like a wild space, but then I think you, you miss a lot of, um, observations that you can still make like in in a suburban neighborhood or even in like a bigger city like birds for example they live everywhere um even big cities have trees um so you know and you have your parks and um and even just experiencing the weather like the wind on your cheek the rain falling on your forehead um experiencing the warmth of the sun uh the cold and like listening to the snow like um uh scrunching like under your or your feet uh, on a really really cold winter day like that's that's part of nature too those are all natural phenomena that you can experience like in a city environment so that's why city to city is is um it really um, emphasizes that sort of daily daily exposure um, and also because you know it, it's a way of experiences experiencing the the changing of the seasons and and um, you know seeing yeah seeing what happens and, and like understanding how nature works because we need we have so many challenges today like I mentioned climate you know obviously global climate change being the most major one um, and we need to have, we need, um, we need to be connected with nature and tuned in and, and know, knowledgeable and understanding, um, all those, um, uh, how the ecosystem works. Um, right. if we're going to have a chance, I think to, to, um, to find solutions to, to these challenges. Yeah. I love that aspect of, of the concept and of your book, how you talk about how to notice nature everywhere. And I think it's really, you know, just taking, you know, the concept of mindfulness and applying it towards looking closer, like you said, listening closer to the crunch of yes. snow. Um, we just, we just chatted with, um, a man named Dexter Patterson. He's known as the Wisco birder. And he was talking about, you know, birding doesn't have to be a big excursion. You can take literally right. two minutes, walk outside your door and just pay attention. And it's yes. what you, it's where you focus your attention, right? I mean, we, are all guilty of focusing our attention on our devices these days more than ever before. Okay. But if you turn that attention upward or, you know, when you hear a bird song, like investigate, check it out. What, who is making that sound, that beautiful right, sound. Right. Um, but that applies to like everything. And for me, you know, the, I think kind of the gateway, I'm very new to, to birding, um, but foraging was something I found during the pandemic that really, it, it encouraged me to look closer in a way that I hadn't, like I'd always really appreciated the changing of the seasons. And I always joke, I could never live somewhere without seasons because I <laughs> love seasonality and like the drama. Yeah. And like right now we're in this tremendous rebirth in, in um, the upper Midwest. Yeah. The the frogs just started singing for the first time two nights ago. And my boys and I went down yeah. and we just listened to them for 20 minutes because it's like, there's no, it's not a coincidence that, you know, we uh, Christians celebrate Easter right now because literally the, the world is resurrecting yeah. from this winter slumber. And I think I always was interested in that 
But then when I started foraging, I started identifying, you know, the names of things, which you talk about in your book too, Mm -hmm. is like, if we don't know the names of things, the knowledge disappears, but how looking closer makes you want to know the names of things. And, you know, like you said, the indigenous peoples of that area and really everywhere um, had that practice of like, they're seeing um, plants, mushrooms and all animals as as subjects um you know yes. thinking of them as a thou then versus an object and how that informs the whole mindset but to boil it down to just like look closer and you mm-hmm. can notice nature like wherever you are and i i love that aspect of it of right this, this right concept. Um, yeah absolutely yeah i couldn't couldn't agree more i i, I discovered uh, foraging just a few years ago when i was in my 40s and that's another beautiful thing about fetus mm. name is that you don't have to be like an extreme, um, uh, extremely outdoorsy person. Like a lot of times when you think of, uh, you know, what, what is an outdoorsy person? You think of typically young men doing, you know, extreme, extreme things uh-huh. in faraway places. Um, but this is very down to earth and it's very inclusive in that, um, that every, everybody can participate in it. Um, and yeah, foraging, like learning the names of things. I I think, I think it adds another dimension to it. It makes me, it really adds to that feeling of being one. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I personally like it. Um, and, uh, and I've started doing some, a little bit of birding too. Uh, I'm reading a book right now called Slow Birding, and it's yeah. uh, it's the same sort of idea there. We keep coming back to this idea of doing something you know slower um, because birding too can become very competitive if you <laughs> right. are just yeah if you just have like a list of birds uh, and and um, uh, you know that then you you're gonna check off and you're traveling you know cross country to find these rare species and then it turns into a competition then, uh, you know, that can add stress and, and maybe even have like the opposite effect. So the whole the idea of slow birding is to to really try and focus on the birds sort of in your nearby area. So it's very sort of goes hand in hand with feet of sleeve. It really aligns really well with that. Right. Right. Um, one of the other things I found so fascinating from your book I had never heard of this before. There are obviously so many ways that um, this shows up in in the life of of Swedes, but even in death, this this idea of the forest cemetery and how the architecture of the trees is thoughtfully created to sort of guide you through the micro stages of, of grief in a service. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I just found that so interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a. Uh, the forest cemetery it's uh, a for uh, a cemetery in in stockholm but a, a lot of cemeteries in, in sweden i would say are designed similarly uh where you sort of invite nature they're very natural natural in that trees are allowed to to grow and um uh, but this cemetery specifically was uh, created to sort of showcase how nature can help people heal um and uh, so, so every feature of the cemetery is sort of carefully planned out to just uh, support the mourners from, you know, no matter, no matter where they are in their mourning process. So, for example, as you um, 
as you get closer to the chapel, as you walk up to the chapel, there are like tall, uh, thick firs, uh, you know, lining the the, ro- the pathway. And then after the sermon ceremony, as you come out um, of the chapel, then uh, the space is more open to sort of lift you out of your griefs in a, in a visual way. And there's also a, a space for meditation, like uh, in a, in an uh, outdoor outdoor space. Um, and this place is amazing, and it's just like teeming with life. So um, I really like how you know instead of thinking of death you really think of life when you when you see it it's uh, it's it teeming with wildflowers and pollinators and various uh, species of trees and, and uh, mushrooms and uh, wildlife too um, and I think it really goes to show that this whole Fininusni culture and the it's something that you uh, that, that accompanies people here from from the day you're born until uh, you know and throughout all the stages of life until uh, death and there's something comforting about that like I said earlier it's just this constant in our lives that we can fall back on and and uh, and in Sweden too nature is uh, it's uh, something that people, turn to when they experience crises of different sorts, like you losing your job or um, being diagnosed with cancer, for example, or losing a child. Um, and and when, when people are in, you know, dire straits, they, they turn to nature and uh, yeah, they find it to be healing. And I'm not surprised. I mean, I, that's certainly how I how I uh, perceive uh, nature, so. Yeah, the same, 100%. And I, I think both the experiences that you can have in nature while dealing with some sort of grief, but then also like the metaphors you can find in nature to help you look to nature for how to move through a period like that. And we just did an episode with naturalists named Emily Stone talking about how she has found these examples of rebirth in nature that really can change how you look at death as a, a human, quite quite honestly, and that was a fascinating conversation. So I 100% agree, and it's so interesting to see how this concept, like you said, can apply to you know the ritual of death as well. Um, but we've talked about you know I think a number of ways that you know people could start embracing this this concept and this philosophy and put it into practice. But there's one other one that I thought would be a fun sort of actionable takeaway for listeners to to try out because. I've been one, I've always loved walking barefoot <laughs> outside and I always, it was just like an intuitive thing. And I'm like, this just feels good. I don't really know why I never really like examined it, but there's, you talk about this in your book, this practice of, of being intentional about going on a barefoot walk, which by the way, is there a, yeah. is there a, a name for that kind of promenade or is that just <laughs> something yes, that yes. people do? <laughs> Bar, yeah, that's a barefoot promenade. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's something that you can do by yourself or, uh, as a group, um, there are some designated barefoot trails here, but it's definitely something that you can, uh, you know, find your own, um, uh, places for as well. Um, and the benefits are of barefoot walking is that it, it does promote a more natural gait. Um, it, 
stimulates. Like we have a lot of like nerve endings in our feet. And so when we walk on like uneven surfaces, um, that sort of creates pressure on these uh, different points in your feet. So, so it sort of gives you a natural foot massage really, and it can improve circulation and sort of ease tight muscles and uh, release endorphins, which, in, you know, in turn, you know, that's the, the hormone that, that helps relieve pain and, and makes us feel relaxed and, and so forth. So, um, and I, and there was a study that I mentioned in my book too, that it was involved, um, some nursing home residents and it showed that walking barefoot on cobblestones, um, can improve balance and even reduce blood pressure. And I thought that was pretty yeah. interesting. Wow. Um, yeah. So it's a, it's an under-researched topic. Um, but, uh, researchers seem to, to agree that it does create stronger feed. And I think it's especially beneficial to young children who are just learning to walk because it really helps them feel the surface and, and helps them, it assists them with their balance. So, you know, I, I, I know when I was little, there was this trend and I don't know how long that went on, but there were little shoes made, especially for babies or toddler kids who were learning how to walk. Um, but you know, and that was a little misguided because really, you know, the best way of uh, learning how to walk is to do it barefoot. Right. And th then, of course, there are times when when uh, kids need to wear shoes, of course, uh, as well to avoid injuries and so forth. But um, but in general, it can really it can help them. Um, and that's something you know that I try to do often. Um, and especially during the the warm season, some people are more hardcore. They do it all year round. I'm not there yet, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but th then that's another uh, historic thing. Actually, sort of, I think around yeah around this time of the year, um, the, yeah, actually the equinox, the spring equinox, um, back in the old agrarian society, that was the date when it was considered okay to go barefoot again, and all the oh. kids were. All, all excited about it back then because the shoes that they wore were not very comfortable, and right. so that's that was like the official starting, Put you know, starting point, yeah. starting point of the barefoot season. So they would check their, their you know, ditch their shoes and they would run around barefoot. Um, and the, yeah, so I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, I'm, I'm still in my shoes, but I'm, I'm I'll get there eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that is a beautiful tip to end on since we are starting the barefoot season here. I'm I'm sure I'm going to. I think we've got a little bit of we got like the last of our snow is just about to melt. So I think we're we're about to that point where we can get out there and, and put the shoes away for a little while at least. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's wonderful. <laughs> well, thank you so yeah. much for sharing the wisdom um, of of the the culture that that coined the term free lift sleeve and I'm sure there's a lot we can all take away from that and in, in, incorporated in our daily living. Well, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed enjoyed chatting about this since it is a passion of mine. So yeah. Beautiful. Thanks again.
You can find The Open Air Life from any bookseller of your choice, and you can learn more about Linda's work at Linda McGurk. That's L-I-N-D-A-M-C-G-U-R-K.com. Open Air Humans is a production of Credo Nonfiction. See and hear more at credononfiction.com. And we'd love to see and hear from you. As part of Open Air Humans, we're collecting something we call Open Air Diaries. We'd love a simple story from you about a moment you were out in nature and became awestruck. Tell us about a time you experienced something that made you feel a deeper or more profound connection to the world around you. If you'd be so kind to record that story on your phone is great and email that audio file to openairhumans at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending your time with us and sharing your life with us out here in the open air.